Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 through 29. Would you read with me? The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward. They did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Let's pray together. Father, we are not only aware of our actions that bring... um, sin into our lives, Lord, that that brings sin into the world, that brings sin into relationships, God. But we are so aware of that feeling of shame, that feeling, that deep pain that will never be loved, that will never be forgiven, will never be accepted if people knew who we truly were, if people knew what we had truly done. God, the gospel gives us hope that you set us free not only from sin, but from the shame that comes into our lives. And so, Holy Spirit, I ask that you'd set us free today, Lord, that people would experience the sigh of relief, that that, like the first deep breath they've ever taken in their lives, that, that rest from the shame that constantly fights against our joy, our peace, our intimacy with you, Lord. Would you set us free today? Would you cure us from shame? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. There's a lot of mixed messages in our world about shame, about what it is, about its effects on society and relationships. In our, in our world, in our culture, it is uh, socially unacceptable, even shameful, to say anything or do anything that would cause somebody to feel ashamed, whether it's for their actions or a particular characteristic or whatever it may be. And yet at the same time, if you do or say anything that goes against the particular views or ideologies of the uh, prevailing culture, it is totally, 100%, acceptable for you to blast that person and publicly shame them and humiliate them until they recant 
and make an apology and or even suffer the consequences of whatever their action was. In fact, an article published in the New Yorker just over a year ago even discusses um, and suggests that we should double down on the public shaming of individuals and corporations who step outside the social boundaries determined by the masses. One commentator even suggests that even though public shaming is at an all-time high because of social media, yet people still conduct shameful acts. And so therefore, we need to ramp up our public shaming. We need to ramp up our social uh, uh, ostracizing of these people in order to get rid of the things that society has deemed to be shameful. Cancel culture has not gone far enough, they say. We need to take humiliation to the next level. And why not? Shame gets results, people. Shame gets results. Shame is a powerful tool for behavior modification. Just ask any parent. We don't like it. We don't want to do it. But oftentimes we find ourselves telling our children, you don't want to be like that kind of person, do you? You don't, you don't want to grow up and, and, and be a liar, so don't lie. You don't want to grow up and, and be poor, so do better in school so you can go to college and get a good job. And, and you don't want to be like this. It's, it's, it's motivating with shame. It's not okay, but it happens. But what it creates when we motivate with shame is a family or a culture that's never safe to wrestle openly with the things that we are truly ashamed of. If we're always afraid that we are going to get blasted, ostracized, canceled, it creates a world where we're all just keeping things hidden. We're all just keeping things under wraps. Don't talk about that or else someone might find out. This happens in the church. Not every church is a safe place for people to confess their struggle, whether it's with their sexuality, with addiction, or whatever else it may be, for fear of being rejected, fear of not being accepted, fear of no longer being loved or, or, or appreciated or accepted by that community. And so people are afraid to talk about the things that they truly struggle with. Why? Because they're afraid of being rejected. Why? Because it happens. It happens in the church. There are countless stories of people who have left the church, not because they lost their faith, but because when they came and asked for help, they were given the cold shoulder. They they, they weren't given help. They were given the boot. And I'm not talking about people living in unrepentant sin, experiencing the results of church discipline. I'm talking about men and women who want to faithfully live according to the commandments of God, according to the truths of scripture, faithfully want to live lives obedient to Jesus. And when they come and ask for help, they're cast aside. It's not okay. So how should we respond? See, our text today gives two responses to one man's sinful behavior. 
one of Noah's son, exposes the shame of Noah's sin, and the other two cover Noah's shame. And our natural reaction to sin and shame in our lives and in the lives of uh, others will follow one of these two patterns, either like Ham or like Shem and Japheth. And which pattern we follow will be determined by our experience with others relating to our sin and our shame. First, I want to provide a little context for this. Noah and his family have just gotten off the ark and they have received God's uh, covenant and his blessing. God has promised now to never destroy the earth in a flood again. And he blesses Noah and his family and says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. And so there is so much hope for humanity again. There's so much uh, uh, potential for beauty and flourishing, just as there was in the original creation. There is so much to be hopeful for. In fact, the text picks up on this foreshadowing about how all the world will be populated through Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. God's creation project is still in full swing in spite of the tragedies that led to the fall, God's creation is still functioning. He is still investing in its flourishing, but this doesn't mean that all is well. And if you've been with us throughout our Origins series, then Noah's story might sound familiar to you. Not because we have discussed Noah's story in any certain detail, but because it is parallel to another story that we have heard. See, Noah's story in Genesis 9 parallels Adam and Eve's story in Genesis 3. See, Adam and Eve were in a garden. They ate the forbidden fruit and realized that they're naked when their eyes are opened and they experience the consequences of their sin. They hide from one another and they hide from God because they are naked. And so Noah is not in a garden. He's in a vineyard. He doesn't eat the forbidden fruit. He drinks the fruit of the vine. He becomes drunk. And in the end, he's lying there in his tent, naked and uncovered. We're supposed to see in Noah's story, a new fall of humanity in the same way that Adam and Eve had squandered the blessing Noah experiences the same sin. Now, before we get too far, I want to point something out. The, Noah, the, the, the nature of Noah's sin is not that he drank alcohol. Okay, the nature of Noah's sin is that he got drunk. Okay, drinking alcohol is not a sin. Drunkenness is. Okay, now, if you cannot drink alcohol without getting drunk, either because of a lack of tolerance or because of a lack of self-control, then no, you should not drink alcohol. You should be wise. You should be responsible. There are many passages in Scripture that talk about the blessing of wine and many passages that talk about the foolishness and the sinfulness of drunkenness. Noah's sin is that he 
completely gave himself over and became drunk and passed out in his tent. Okay, and as a result of his sin, Noah winds up naked and in his tent. And one of his sons, Ham, the text says, saw the nakedness of his father and told his brothers outside. Okay, if you have studied this passage at any depth, you have probably discovered that there are just wild uh, theories as to what it means to see his father's nakedness. We don't have time to get into all of them, but they deserve to be mentioned. I want to summarize the variety of opinions in in two ways. First, um, there are those who say Ham, Ham simply saw his father's naked body and made fun of his father to his brothers. The other side would say that Ham, in some way, physically assaulted his father or his mother. In some way, Ham did something violent to one of his parents. Now, the language of seeing the nakedness of his father could be a euphemism for something far more sinister. However, if it is a reference to something other than what is said in the text, the text leaves it intentionally vague for a reason. And so any understanding or any application we can come up with from this text must be rooted in what the text says and not in conjecture of what it might be relating to. And so this makes Ham's violation of his father not what took place in the tent, but what he did with that information. It's not what happened in the tent, the, the, the details of that that the author is most focused on. It's what he did with the information. So Ham not only saw Noah's exposed body, not only saw whatever it was was happening there, but he actively exposed the shame of Noah's sin to others. Ham exposed his father. He exposed his shame. Even though he was not involved in leading Noah to that point, he was involved in exposing his shame to others. Now, in the same way that Noah's sin is paralleled to Adam and Eve's story, um, we still have to ask the question, is If it is a parallel, then where is the serpent figure, right? The serpent that tempted Adam and Eve to sin. Okay. Ham is the serpent figure. Ham is the serpent figure in the story because um, Satan is not just a tempter. He is an accuser. Okay. It's showing a different side of the enemy's work in our lives. He doesn't just tempt us to sin, but when we do, he rubs it in our face, accuses us. Revelation 12, 10 says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren, that he stands before God and accuses us day and night. He points out to God all of the reasons that you and I are unworthy of God, all of the reasons, all of the ways that we have broken covenant with God. He publishes our sin. He publishes our shame in the presence of God. So Ham is a picture of Satan. And we, 
We play the devil's game when we publish the sins of another. So reality carp. Gossip is the devil's business. Gossip is what Satan does. Gossip is what the enemy of God's people does. He is the accuser of the brethren. And even if you are coming to a brother and sister in Christ with news about another person so that they will pray for them, without that person's permission, you are doing the devil's work. Gossip is absolutely unacceptable in God's family. And gossip makes a church unsafe to bring sin into the light. Gossip has massive implications for the body of Christ. It makes the church, it makes the family of God, it makes our brothers and sisters in Christ unsafe to bring sin into the light. We need to know that we can be vulnerable. We need to know that we can be authentic about our struggles, about our temptations and sin. We need to know that we can come to the body of Christ, that they'll understand us, that they'll love us, that they'll cover us with grace. We need to know that the church is a safe place to bring our struggles to ask for people for prayer, to ask people to keep us accountable to, to walking in victory over sin. But if we have friends who talk about the sins of others in front of us, how do we know that they will not do the same about our sins to others? So even if you are coming to a brother or sister in Christ because you've got some juicy thing to say about someone else and, oh, you need to pray for this person, all you are doing is undermining your relationship with that person because now they know or they should know that you are not safe to bring their struggles to. And one by one, little by little, we completely undermine the safety in the community of the body of Christ. You see how Satan just completely wants to dismantle our ability to deal radically with our sin as scripture says to do because he makes us unsafe places for one another. Don't do the devil's business and spread the sin of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Ham publishes the sin of his dad. He publishes his shame and he suffers the consequences. Noah pronounces a curse on Ham's son, Canaan. Canaan is cursed for his actions. Now, again, there's so many questions about this. Why is Canaan cursed? Instead of Ham, when Ham is the one who does the deed, why is Canaan suffering the consequences? Some thoughts are that one, uh, Noah can't curse what God has already blessed. Some say that God blessed Noah and his sons. And so Noah is, is not able to curse something that God has already blessed. And so he curses his son. That's one idea. Um, some will use this as an example of generational curses. They will say that the sins of the father are visited on the third and fourth generation. That's quoting scripture, that, that, that God is, 
is uh, he, he recognizes that there are generational consequences for the sins of a parent. But um, th- this, I honestly don't believe is what's happening here because not all of Ham's children are cursed, just Canaan, um, which is also a reason why the justification, that people used to use this text as justification for the slave trade um, because of Ham's sin. And when you look at Ham's children and where they end up uh, having families and building kingdoms, it's Egypt and Ethiopia and down into Africa. And so people will say, see, this justifies the slave trade, but that's ridiculous because uh, Egypt and Cush and Put, two of the other children of him, they're not cursed. Those are the ones associated with the African nations. Canaan is associated with the promised land, the Middle East, around Israel, that area. That, that doesn't make sense at all. So I don't think this is related to the generational curse idea. Still more, there are those who hold the view that Ham's sin um, was not just a visual act, but was actually an incestual act with either his father or his mother. And if it was with his mother, then Canaan could be the offspring of that union and therefore Noah cursed him. That is another idea that is out there using the euphemistic language of seeing his father's nakedness. That is something that people have suggested. Again, though, the text doesn't give a reason. So we need to allow what is said to inform our understanding without speculation about what is not said. And so my view on this, honestly, has changed over the years. Uh, My view, my understanding of, of this text has not always been the same. But recently, I'm inclined to see this passage in the context of God's instruction to Noah earlier considering, uh, concerning murder. Noah is told, um, if you shed the blood of man, by man shall your blood be shed. And we talked about a few weeks ago how this is a picture, this is an early uh, presentation of the law, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, wound for wound, burn for burn. It's creating a justice system that is based on uh, the penalty for a crime fitting the crime. And so if this is associated with, if this is a just act, Noah pronouncing a curse on Canaan, he's never, he's never uh, uh, um, ridiculed or condemned for pronouncing this curse on Canaan. And so if it is a just act, then it could be related to the fact that Noah was shamed by his youngest son. And so the consequence would be that Ham would be shamed by his youngest son as well. That the curse on Canaan is a curse on Ham. In the same way that I have been shamed by my child, you will be shamed by your child in his way of life, in what he is doing. Either way, the curse on Canaan is a result of Ham's action. Okay, not Canaan's. But his actions, Ham's actions, are contrasted with what his brothers do. And their children are blessed by their actions. Shem and Japheth's children receive a blessing. And so where Ham uh, exposes his father, Shem and Japheth cover their father. They put a blanket on their shoulders and they walk backward into the tent to avoid seeing their father, and they lay the blanket down in order to cover up his shame. 
And so if Ham is a picture of the serpent in Genesis 3, then Shem and Japheth are a picture of God in Genesis 3. If you remember, Adam and Eve are naked and they're trying to cover themselves up with fig leaves, but God uh, clothes them in animal skins. He makes the sacrifice and clothes them in the skins of animals and gives them better clothing to cover themselves up as they endure the harsh reality outside of Eden. And so Shem and Japheth are this picture of God covering the shame of the one who has sinned. Now, I want to be very clear that Covering shame is not the same as covering up sin. Okay, these are two very different things. To cover up sin is to pretend that it is not there or that it's not a problem. Okay, to cover shame is to regard the sin in its severity, to recognize the sin and its consequences, but it protects the reputation of the person, limiting the social damages to those who are directly impacted by the sin. Okay, covering up sin is pretending it's not there or that it's not a problem, but covering shame acknowledges the sin, but protects the person's reputation protects that person's status in the community, protects them of unnecessary pain, especially when they are repentant and learning to live in uh, and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This is not the same as covering up sin. It's dealing with sin appropriately while not destroying the person in the process. Covering one another's shame is not the same as covering up sin. Now, this gets tricky in community, especially when we're talking about leaders in the church. Many churches have covered up the sins of their leaders under the umbrella of protecting their reputation, covering their shame. They've actually covered up the sins of their leaders. But when a leader is living in unrepentant sin, a leader in the church, it makes them unfit. It makes them disqualified for leadership because the sin impacts the entire community. Whether their sin was a sin against an individual or not, it is a sin against the office of that leader. If that person is an elder or a deacon or whatever else it may be, that sin is a sin against the office. It is a sin against the entire church. And so it must be dealt with in, the, uh, in, in a way that acknowledges that sin to those who are impacted by the sin. If I go shipwreck my life, it affects all of us. Okay, this is part of what it means for teachers to be judged with stricter judgment. Many churches, denominations right now are suffering the consequences of covering up sin instead of acknowledging it in a way that deals with the sin, but still protects them as a child of God. And what's happening is it's bringing shame on everyone. When we cover up sin in our lives or in the church, 
the ultimate result is the shame of everyone and, and defaming the name of Jesus. Many people in this world don't like the idea of Jesus because not just the, there's sin in the church, but because there's the covering up of sin in the church. And it brings shame on everyone. Covering shame is not the same as covering up sin. In fact, covering shame creates safety for confessing sin. Covering one another's shame creates safety for confessing sin. If you know that you are safe to talk about something, if you, are, if you know that you are safe to bring something into the light without fear of being publicly humiliated, then you are more likely to deal with sin in the radical way that Scripture requires. 1 John 1, 6-9 says, If we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, He, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, right? For covering up sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What is the radical way that scripture teaches us to deal with sin? Bring it into the light. Confess it to God. Confess it to another brother or sister in Christ. Someone who can pray for us. Someone who can pronounce forgiveness, God's forgiveness over us, that grace abounds. The way we deal radically with sin is to get it out of the dark and to bring it into the light. But the reason we don't bring our sin into the light or make it known is because the enemy tells us that no one will understand, that no one will, will forgive us, that we'll be rejected, we'll be shamed in front of others, so it's just better to keep it in. Look, I'm not going to be foolish. I have been in seasons in my life where I have heard this very message and just in my heart, no, just don't just look the other way. No, it's, it's fine. God, God will deal with it. I, I, don't need to, I don't need to think about it. I don't need to talk about it. I don't need to tell this person. Just keep it in the dark. Keep, no one will understand. No one will, you'll, you'll, you'll lose everything. No, don't, don't talk about it. Look, whatever it is, okay, whatever that thing is on your mind right now that you don't want to talk about it, that's what we're talking about. That thing you can talk about it and you can experience grace. The greatest power the enemy has over us at times is the fear that if we truly did repent of our sin, if we truly did bring it into the light, that no one will forgive us, no one will understand us. And the enemy warns us that the person we tell is just going to respond like Ham. They're going to make fun of us. They're going to laugh at us. They're going to spread our shame. It's best to just leave it in the dark, believing that it's better to, to leave it unknown than to bring it into light and to be healed and cleansed. I want to go back and read this part of, of 1 John that we just read. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just 
to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That besetting sin, that habitual sin, that thing that you can't get rid of, that thing that continues to bring shame into your life. The reason it is still there is because you won't talk about it. The reason it's still there is because it's in the dark. But God casts his light in the dark. And you realize that all we've been looking at is this shadow that looks so much larger on the walls of our heart. But when God's light shines on it, we see that little tiny thing that looked like such a big shadow. We realize that thing has no power over us at all. As soon as we bring it into the light, it loses power because it loses the shame that's associated with it as the blood of Christ covers it. I debated whether or not to tell this story, but I feel like I have to. Uh, My wife and I were dating for, I don't know, maybe a year. And I realized that, man, she's pretty great. Um, I should probably do something about this. Lock, lock this down. Um, and I just knew that if I'm going to spend the rest of my life with this person, she's got to know things about me that I've never told anyone before. And I was absolutely convinced that she, like Ham, she was going to just reject me. She was going to mock me. She was never going to want to see me again. She was never going to want to talk to me again. If I talked about my addictions, if I talked about my less than chaste relationships with other women before I met her, I just knew that she is going to leave. And I remember telling her I was coming home from, I was at school at Biola at the time and I was coming to visit her. She was living in Lompoc at the time. And so I was coming to visit her. I told her, I said, hey, we need to talk. And she, she was absolutely convinced that I was going to break up with her. I'm absolutely convinced that she's going to break up with me. And so we went for a drive and I just, I, I, I laid it all out. And I said, Katie, if, if you never want to see me again, I totally understand. And I will never forget her words. Her first words, I love you. I see you through the blood of Jesus. And I want you to be free from this. That conversation where we both were convinced we were getting dumped. We were like, literally, I kid you not, literally hanging out the windows as we're like, we went for a drive, right? We were driving through Santa Maria, like shouting out the windows how amazing Jesus was. I was so convinced that my sin was going to make me unlovable. But anyone that can see you through the blood of Jesus knows that, look, because of our sin, we're all unlovable. But because of the blood of Jesus, God loves you. Do you, do you get that? It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what anyone else in your life has told you that you are because of this sin. It doesn't matter if anyone else has rejected you. God says he won't. He won't reject you. And his church won't reject you if you repent of sin. You can't be rejected by those 
who are following Jesus. You can't keep it in the dark anymore. It's this little tiny like mouse of a thing that has this massive shadow on the walls and it looks like this scary monster. It's not. It's weak. It's pathetic. It is not greater than the blood of Jesus. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Look, everybody knows you have sin. Okay, it's funny. People show up to home group or they show up to Bible studies and people are confessing sin and they leave and like, those people are a mess. No, those people are healthy. You know why? Because they're at the doctor. Okay, you show up to a home group, you show up to a Bible study and everyone's got it all together. Hightail it out. That is not a safe place for you. You show up and people are just a mess. Guess what? So are you. That's where you belong. It's where we belong. Okay, Jesus didn't come to save the righteous. He saved sinners, which is everybody. It's everybody. Confessing our sin is a sign of health. So what are you going to do with the sin in your life? You're going to cover it up? You're going to pretend like it's not there, pretend like it's not a problem? It will depend entirely upon how you believe people will respond. If they respond like Ham, then there's probably no way you're going to share it. If they respond like Shem and Japheth, you might be able to work up the courage to be vulnerable. This gets to the heart of our passage. See, it would be really easy to come in here and say, hey, church, don't be like Ham, okay? Be like Shem and Japheth. You don't want to be like that kind of person, do you? You don't want to be like that kind of person who who spreads sin around, do you? You want to be like Shem and Japheth. But what I just do, just shamed you. Just shamed you into obedience, Do not leave this place thinking the pastor told me, don't be like Ham, be like Shem and Japheth. No, I'm telling you, you're like Noah. I'm like Noah. We need someone to cover us. We need someone to protect us. We need someone to cover our shame. See, we can resist the desire to spread sin, spread the shame of people's sin around Pretend like it's not a big deal, cover it up, do whatever, wink, sweep it under the rug. Right, we can be tempted to, to not do that, but, but, but do better. But the truth is we're like Noah. We're intoxicated with sin and vulnerable. We're desperate for someone to cover us. And in our moment of need, we often think that God will act like Ham, that we're going to confess our sin to God and God's going to say, shame on you. After what I did for you, died on the cross for you, and you're going to go mess around with that stuff? Shame on you. That's not what God does. We know that God hates sin, and so we're fearful that he's going to expose us or humiliate us. But God is not like Ham. He's like Shem and Japheth. He doesn't ignore the sin. See, Ham doesn't come out of the tent and tell them what dad's doing, and Shem and Japheth be like, hey, just... Don't talk about it. No, they do something about it. They do something about it. They cover his sin. 
And so God wants us to deal radically with our sin and our shame. And so God did do something radically to get rid of our sin and shame. He sent Jesus. See, Jesus confronts our sin and yet covers our shame. That feeling that you're experiencing, that this thing in your life, it ought not be there. That's not God shaming you. That is God convicting you. That is the Holy Spirit dealing with your sin head on. Jesus confronts our sin, but he covers our shame. He doesn't pretend like it's not a big deal. He doesn't sweep it under the rug, but he doesn't shame us for it either. He didn't come simply to point out all that we were doing is wrong. Remember, that's the devil's business to accuse us. That's what Satan does. We don't need another accuser. We don't need Jesus to accuse us of sin. He convicts us of sin. He He makes us recognize that it's not okay. But he doesn't just, you know, like point and scoff and mock. He enters into our brokenness. He enters into our drunkenness. He enters into our vulnerability. He enters into our humanity, into our nakedness. And he doesn't gloat over us. He covers us, not with blankets, but with his blood. By suffering the consequences for our sin, he removed our shame. Just like Ham, Satan's accusations against you and your sin are real. You can't pretend that they're not. And the consequences of our sin are, in fact, real. More real than we might want to acknowledge. So the enemy comes in and says, you did this, you did that, you did this, you did that. Those accusations, they're real. If you did those things, yeah. And he'll remind you, you know, hey, sin separates you from God. Sin cuts you off from the presence of God. See, God's not answering your prayer. God God doesn't love you. God's not going to do this thing in your life. God's not going to protect you. God's not going to provide for you until you, because you've got this thing in your life. But with these facts, the enemy also spins with it this lie. He says, nobody will understand. Nobody will forgive you. Keep it to yourself. But I'm here to tell you that there is one who understands. And there is one who forgives. And it's the same one that doesn't make you bear it alone. Jesus understands. Jesus forgives. Jesus wants to take it from you. See, all of the sin and the shame that we experience in our lives that separates us from God, that the enemy reminds us of, Jesus took that with him on the cross. Okay, your sin, your shame was nailed to the cross as Jesus was publicly mocked and humiliated, crucified naked until he died. All of the sin, all of the shame, all of the penalty was taken off of you and put on the cross and died that day with Jesus. And Jesus was laid in the tomb. He was buried in the grave. He was there for three days and he rose from the dead, conquering not only death, 
but conquering your sin, conquering your shame. When he raised to life, your sin stayed dead. Your shame stayed dead. The reason that you can be honest about your sin is because there is now no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The reason you can confess your sin is because you can look around this room and we're just like you. Sinners saved by grace. The person next to you is not any more righteous than you, not any more wicked than you. We are all sinners saved by grace. The playing field has been leveled. What are you going to do? Tell someone you're a sinner? We know. We might not know the particular symptoms that are being expressed in your sin, but I don't care. If it weren't for the grace of God, all of us are capable of the most wicked depravity. None of our sins should surprise anybody. Shocking. You you too? You also are depraved? Shouldn't shock any of us. The gospel levels the playing field. We are all sinners saved by grace. There's a song by the worship artists, Shame, Shane and Shane. Not shame and shame. Shane and Shane. Somebody shared with me years ago, um, it's called Embracing Accusations, and it talks about the experience of shame because of sin and the enemy's power in it. The song says, Oh, the devil's singing over me an age-old song that I am cursed and gone astray. Singing the first verse so conveniently over me, he's forgotten the refrain, Jesus saves We hear the voice of the enemy. You are cursed and gone astray. Cursed is the one who can't abide. And the enemy leaves out the thing that is the the, the, the truest thing, is that Jesus saves sinners. Don't forget the refrain. The world wants to shame you into their image but it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And as we confess our sin, as we bring our sin to the foot of the cross and we walk away from our sin, the apostle Peter says that repent, that times of refreshing may come. That when we repent of our sin, we are refreshed. We are cleansed of not only the sin, but of the shame. And we walk away in freedom. Jesus is the cure, not only for the penalty of sin, but he is the cure for the shame that we experience because of our sin. You have nothing to be ashamed of. You are more fully known than you could possibly imagine by God. God knows you. He sees all of it. You are fully known things that you like to be known for and things that you don't like to be known for. You are fully known, but you are fully loved. There's nothing that God knows about you that will keep you from his love for you. But until you walk in the light as he is in the light, you will experience a separation from him. Not saying an eternal separation, 
but an experiential, a relational separation. Because we're not bringing our whole selves to him honestly, and he just wants us to be honest with him. And the craziest thing happens when we experience our shame being covered by God and by the community of Jesus. We actually become shame coverers. Because we know what it's like to not be condemned for our sin, we become shame coverers. And as we operate as shame coverers, the church becomes a safe place to confess sin. And as the church becomes a safe place to confess sin, more people will confess sin. And as they confess sin, they'll experience the covering of their shame. And they will become shame coverers who become safe people for you to confess sin. And the, the, the implications of God covering our shame continues to multiply and continues to exponentially increase in this world. And guess what? More people will confess sin and more people will experience the grace that covers their sin and covers their shame. And people will be transformed if the church would just cover one another's shame and not spread it around, not gossip to one another, not act like they're better than one another, but act like we are sinners saved by the blood of Jesus who are desperate for his grace day in and day out. Thanks be to God for Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who know him. And if you put your faith in Jesus and just acknowledge that your sin is sin, it will be forgiven and you will be set free. Holy Spirit, set your people free. Jesus, set your people free. Lord, this Pentecost Sunday, how beautiful it would be if we repented and times of refreshing came and the Holy Spirit poured out on your people and gave us that first deep breath that we've experienced in a long time as our sin is washed away, our shame is lifted, the million tons of weight on our shoulders is taken off of us and cast into the sea. Holy Spirit, come and fill your people with freedom. Holy Spirit, come and and fill your people with joy. Holy Spirit, come and fill us with the peace and freedom and joy that comes with the salvation of Jesus. May we remember our salvation. May we remember the height from which we have fallen. May we remember our first love. May we remember these things and go and do the things that we did at first, rejoicing in the freedom that we have, that our sin is forgiven, that we are under the blood of Jesus. Holy Spirit, come and make us new again. Holy Spirit, come and renew us again. Holy Spirit, come and do what only you can do. Set your people free in Jesus' name. Amen.